Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Hi, it's Tuesday night, and I'll tell you the truth, when I came home, I thought we didn't have any sponsors, I was just going to do it. I was happy to see, and I came home, and tonight's, uh, we do have a sponsor, tonight is being sponsored by the Millers, Ed Iris Miller, for the best of all possible occasions, in honor of the birth of a son to Ari and Heather Elbaud. These are uh, names I mention all the time. Ari and his wife are my uh, key members on the team, let's put it that way, I'll put all my things together. Uh, wonderful people. They just had a baby boy. Mazel tov to them, to their parents, Howard and Judy, Elbaum, to Heather's parents, the Sussis and Tina, and to the Gantz Cholester, as they say. And uh, hopefully, they'll be able to raise the baby with Everybody loves him. And they should be able to walk the baby down at his wedding. And the grandparents should be good health to be able to attend the wedding. If I keep going, going like this, everybody's going to need Kleenex. So, Mazel Tov to all, and you should go to the Millers. They're good friends of Harry and Heather, and uh, they're just nice all around. Today we're looking, obviously this week's in nine days, and you know the calendar is always arranged in such a way that you read Devarim before um, Tisha B'Av, so you can say, The Moshe Bain is complaining about the Jews borching all the time, drove him crazy for 40 years. Now he's letting it happen. You know, to a certain degree, the Book of Dwarm is eventing. He's just, Moses just letting it all out. Um, it's the 40th year, shortly before his death. The old generation is gone. You know, all that business. Um, and you know what I mean? That's uh, near his death. And, um, and, and now he's giving his farewell speech. Uh, and it's a long speech. Basically, this one long address that goes over the course of Dvorim, Boschan, and Ekev, and Re'eh. When you get to Shofter, it's not 100% clear. You know, does he just switch to giving laws? Or is it another thing? It's it's unclear. But Dvorim, Boschan, and Ekev, is pretty clear. It's a continuous speech. Matter of fact, it's kind of repetitious. It's highly rhetorical. It uses rhetoric. Rhetoric was used in the language for effect. That's why you repeat sometimes. It's very hectoring. But she gone the old time saying over and over again, don't do what is up, don't go off the derrick, don't make the mistakes your parents made. You know, he tells them this week about the, the, the spies, and then he has to recount basically, he's giving a historical uh, speech, which to me is very interesting because usually <clears throat> when you want to explain how things are, you have to explain how things were. <clears throat> and that's my interest in history. You know? it's a, different people are a different way. Science people like to understand things. From a science perspective, which is fine, it's totally fine. One's not better than the other. But a lot of people, like Moshe, say, if you want to understand where we are now, you have to understand how we got here. <clears throat> and basically, that's what he's t- trying to do. If you're Moshe Rabbeinu, it has to be apologia for uh, vita suta, you know, vita sua. You have to give an explanation of your life because how come he's not he's not going to take him in Israel? You know, he gets them all here. Their parents left Egypt. This is a generation later. The old generation just finished dying. 
there's very few people left from the original generation. They know they left Egypt, that's all they know. Or maybe they're very young when they left Egypt, you know what I mean. And um, uh, well, some of them were older, but whatever. Um, and he's saying, you know, uh, your parents didn't want to get to Israel. Well, you're going to get there, I'm not going to get to Israel either. <clears throat> Which means Moshe is one of the Mesei Midbar. Now, he wants to explain why. You know what I'm saying? He's saying, I'm, I'm taking my farewell of you, not near Israel. Why? So he has to say, listen, you know, it was a whole long story. Metamoraglim hit the rock or whatever it was. And, you know, and here we are today. I'm soon going to be gone. And you'll have to go into Israel with Yoshua ben Nun, Hu uh, Yanchilan is Israel or whatever the Loshan is. And, uh, you know, he's given the reasons for that. Now, it's very interesting. It's important. It's rhetorical. He uses figures of speech, sometimes exaggerations, sometimes a lot of repetition. <clears throat> Emotionalism. <clears throat> That's emotional. You're using it for effect. He's trying to make mashpia on the Bnei Yisrael. He's trying to give him one last whack of Musr before he's gone, because after that you won't hear him anymore. <clears throat> right? So he's trying to, and he's trying to put his spin on the past. I remember there's a medrash, I think in in, um, in this week's parsha probably, in uh, in Dvorim Rabba, <clears throat> which is a later part of the medrash. It's a different characteristics than the other four, but I don't want to go into that right now. Uh, and it says, oh, Moshe used to say your kvad peh. Look how eloquent you became. Because <clears throat> giving a long speech, and it's a, it's a somewhat flowery speech. And this led me thinking, because it's very interesting, uh, indeed, Moshe Rabbeinu complained at the beginning, as we all know, the burning bush, <clears throat> that he was a kvad peh. And God said, I want you anyway. In general, at the burning bush, as we all know, God, like, sort of recruited him, and Moshe kept saying, no, no, no. And literally, Hashem would not take no for an answer. That's the story that we all know. There's never been 100% clear why Hashem Dafka went in Moshe, but you sort of get the idea um, as you go through the Chumash, you know, what Moshe's qualities were. Uh, he didn't want somebody glib and a good speaker. Well, let's put it this way. The fact is, Kvah Ped didn't bother him. Me son Pel Adam. And so here's, now 40 years later, he's not a Kvah Ped anymore. Now, how do you understand this? If you understand Kfad Peb as a stutterer, the m m m m m m like that, so how come he's doing, how come, what's the difference eloquent? If what I just said is true, and Moshe wasn't cured, they're different midrash and different versions. Well, you know, you know the story where he ate the coals when he was a baby. So if he, if he's, talk funny, like this, so when he says, he's also talking funny. I mean, that's a, a permanent thing, unless you say, now, Hashem cured it somewhere along the line, in which case he's not a quad pet as a result of a miracle. Perhaps you can say that, you know, I mean, you don't know what to do with all this. It could be the Harsinai, they say all the people are cured. Uh, I don't know. Uh, that's one way of, <clears throat> of approaching the subject. <clears throat> and I'm sure they're more to go into this sort of thing. Others, however, and by the way, there's a lot of very interesting stuff on that. I believe it's the Maral, but it's also the Drusha Saran, who says, I'm sure you heard this one time, and it's very famous, then Hashem said, I don't want an eloquent guy, because then people think he talked him into leaving Egypt, uh, you know, through through uh, shooting the bull. He was a demagogue, a Korach. You know, some guys can sell you to Brooklyn Bridge. <clears throat> so Moshe sold him a land flowing with milk and honey. You know, he can do like that. He's the original Jewish real estate agent, you know. I'll take you to Swampland in Florida, and declare it, you know, it's a paradise. I'm taking the land flow of milk and honey, which is what Korach and and uh, <clears throat> Dosan Verim accused him 
low alerts of Aschalov Shabi You know, he promises this now they're going to down deliver. So the the enemies of Moshe basically said he shot the bull with them. He promised them pie in the sky and never delivered. <coughs> you understand? <coughs> you understand? Um, so again, the Drush of Tehran and others, the Maral, say no. Moshe was not eloquent, and he maybe talk like talk like that, and maybe even worse. And in spite of that, Claudius all followed him, right? So then that would mean that's the truth. I mean, that's that's the way they try to take, turn the uh, broken lemons, make a lemonade. You understand? Okay, that works. I mean, <clears throat> that is certainly one classic school of thought in Jewish parshanut. Another way of understanding Kvad Pet doesn't mean that he had a speech impediment. <clears throat> Rather, much as I speak too harshly, I'm not a good talker because I'm, I'm too raw, too rough. You get it? And this raises us a very interesting question. <clears throat> when did Moshe pick Moshe? He picked an interesting guy. First of all, could be a BT, because this raised a question we'll never know. Was Moshe raised from or not? You know, the from of Farshim tried to make it in such a way that, you know, Pharaoh's daughter gave over to him for a long time, and only to a certain age he come to the palace. And by that time, he was already dressed with a shram kapata and a pace and all the rest of it. <clears throat> That's ridiculous. Pashim Shah is... The mother nursed him. They grew up in Pharaoh's palace. And he went to the prep schools in the palace, like the Egyptian princes. <clears throat> in which case, Moshe had a first-class education. A Gaish education. An Egyptian education. Uh, I'm going to ask the following interesting question. Did Moshe speak Hebrew? Okay, These are not simple questions to answer. I'll ask a better question. Did Kalei did the slaves in Egypt speak Hebrew? Or did they only know Egyptian? These are, <clears throat> I regard, mega questions because you don't know how to read the Chumash all the time. I've made the point on many occasions, which is really obvious when you think about it, that the Chumash, for a large part, is not literally true in the sense that it's conveying the actual words that people spoke. <clears throat> when Moshe spoke to Pharaoh, for example, I'm sure he spoke in Egyptian. So when he said, Shalach Amivi Abduni, and Pharaoh says, Mi Hashem Hashem Pharaoh didn't use those Hebrew words, me, Hashem, Asher, Shmavakol. Pharaoh said whatever he said. You understand? When the Rabboni Shalom, and I'm giving the firm view now, dictated the Torah to Moshe, so he, I'm talking about God now, <coughs> gave the version that should go down <coughs> in the Torah and throughout history. So God said that what Pharaoh said was, me, Hashem, Asher, Shmavakol. Then maybe Pharaoh would give a whole different speech. Maybe Pharaoh said this, maybe Pharaoh said that. The Rabboni Shalom tells Moshe right down, and so on and so forth, right? Um, and so when Moshe says to Pharaoh, Moshe was speaking in Egyptian. Pharaoh didn't speak Hebrew. Uh, same thing when Avraham spoke to Avimelech. You, do you see what I'm saying? You know, whenever you get these kind of things, they're not literally true in the verbatim sense. <clears throat> they're true in the sense that that's what it conveys. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm pointing out something very interesting. Paro might deny when I said this, I did not mean me Hashem Hashem Avakolo. But the Rebbe Shalom says, yes, you did. <laughs> you get it? No, we're getting God's take on it. And since it's Rebbe Shalom, so he's got the right take. That's, that's how it looks. Power would promise from now till tomorrow. That's not what I meant. I go into denial, <clears throat> you know, like a politician. You get it? Like a politician. But Hashem said, this is what you meant. I'm putting down forever me Hashem Hashem Avakolo or something like that. It's just interesting. 
So same thing in general. You know, when Korach said, Azoi and Azoi, he might have used these words or those words. Hashem said, you write down this and this. <clears throat> so it's a certain way of imposing your narrative through the power of words, through the use of rhetoric. Because the Torah is, among other things, a rhetorical piece. That's not all it is, but it's one of the things it is. Right? And it gives you what Hashem says is, you know, the version that should be in history. <clears throat> I repeat, it doesn't mean that's literally true there was the actual word spoken by the elders. First of all, they didn't speak in Hebrew. Second of all, they might have said, it doesn't mean that in Egyptian he actually used the words it's quite possible. In fact, it's not all unlikely. I think they're Egyptians and they're slimy, conniving, liars. They said all kinds of things. But basically, you know, uh, this is what they meant. I remember when I was a kid, there was a famous um, uh, headline. The New York Times says, President Ford said the New York dropped dead. Now, what he really said was, I'm not giving you a loan. New York at that time was in bad shape, and they badly needed a loan of some kind, and the federal government said they're not giving you a loan. So Ford did not say drop dead. <clears throat> but according to the New York Times, or maybe it was the New York Post, you know, according to the guy writing the headlines, cutting away all the bull, that's what he said. Because if I'm not giving the money, basically I'm saying drop dead. <clears throat> but it's touching up. So the Chumash is also touching up. So when we have the same thing when it comes to the Devarim, Devarim, I mean, it sounds like a speech, but it might not be. I'll tell you what I'm saying. There's a famous question, the Abarmanil and the Vilnagon, everybody goes into this, and I'm sure you, <clears throat> this is not the first time you've ever heard it, that, you know, what do we do with the book of Devarim? So Hashem, you know, told Moshe what to write. Right? Things like that. But when it gets to Devarim, it's the words of Moshe. These are not the words of Hashem. Right? It says that. This is the speech given by Moshe. So, am I to invest the words of Moses with the kind of sanctity and infinite uh, magnitude that the words of Hashem are? You can't do that. Moshe was a human being. He was the greatest human being that ever lived, but he was a human being. So how can you go and match the two? So you have to end up... You know, so first of all, I don't know. Nobody knows the answer to that question. But, because these questions are raised, so... Like I said before, I think the Abarbanel and others, uh, you know, try to be miyashim in a dialectical fashion and to try to explain and harmonize it with the basic principles of the Jewish belief. <clears throat> Excuse me. And um, they'll say something along the following lines. Moshe's words were Moshe's words. And Hashem considered them very valuable. <clears throat> but when it came to including them in the Torah... Hashem says, I will dictate the words to say. So when we read in the Chumash today, this is the edited version that God is issuing. We told Moshe to write, Ela, and then write the word Hadvarim, and then write Asher, and then write the word Deber, and so forth. So, again, this is, what shall I say, this is Rabbanishal taking the speech of Moshe and giving it the final version that he wants, not that Moshe necessarily wants. Now, it's possible that the final version that you and I have are identical with the words of Moshe. <clears throat> I got no problem with that. It could be. You know, it's very misnomer. However, it's also possible not that, right? It could be the Moshe threw in other things over here, and um, it's not in here. It's not in here. Now, what what, what leads me to say all this? Moshe's name is a Kavad Peb. He, he spoke too harshly. Um, when Hashem got Moshe... When he recruited him, one thing he got 
was a person with a first-class secular education. This is very interesting. The Ibn Ezra talks about this at the beginning of Shmos in a different way. You know what I'm saying? The slaves who were in Egypt working the salt mines, they had zero education. As far as we know, they were slaves. I mean, what are you going to say? They went to Cheder, and they went to high school, and after they finished high school, then they joined the, the slave force. That's not how a slave market works. A slave economy, you put the kids to work at a certain age. I remember reading a um, Smithsonian article from somebody, I think Carol Miller gave it to me, and it was about Thomas Jefferson and the way he made Monticello, Monticello, you know, his plantation. And it was a son of a gun. To Hino, uh, Thomas Jefferson wanted to turn his plantation into a moneymaker as much as possible. I get that. And so one of the things, and he had all these slaves. So what does that mean? I mean, you don't give him education. So at a young age, he had them working in like nails. They had a sock where they were making nails all day long. They got a single concentration camp. You understand? A single concentration camp. They don't show you this so much when they give you the tour of Monticello. Of course, now with the woke and the PC, maybe they're going to burn Monticello down. And I'm not in favor of that, but I hear where it's coming from. Because these guys were slave owners <coughs> and ran a tough proposition. So the same thing with Claudius Israel back in time of Egypt. Don't think Avodah's parak was only for the adults. Everybody was part of the, the, the system. Because the idea of the system is to make money. <coughs> right? The idea of the system of slavery is to make maximum amount of money. That's what slavery is all about. This is the reason why, you know, when you had the ten plagues, the system became a mockery of itself. I mean, it's a, it's a beautiful story from the literary point of view besides the religious point of view. <clears throat> because here's Paro, whose heart is hardened, and everybody's telling him, listen, the slaves are costing us money, you know, with the with the Dom Svardia, Kenim, Arav, Devashkin, and so forth. The economy's taking a tremendous hit. It's not Kedai to have the slaves anymore. If I'm losing money, you get it? Then it doesn't make sense to have the slaves. <clears throat> and he hardened his heart. He couldn't let go of them. So, it's a little bit like, if you know your American history very well, you may know that, um, have I ever said this before? If you know American history pretty well, you'll know that, of course, there used to be slavery, I think, in all the 13 colonies. <clears throat> and then, and nobody said boo. And then came the American Revolution. And as a result of the American Revolution, a certain feeling for freedom popped up. And it took a little while, but not that long. And there started to be a feeling of abolitionism. That if this is a free country, shouldn't have slaves. is incompatible. And little by little, an abolitionist movement, I'm talking about in the 1780s and 1790s. Not everybody knows this. <clears throat> an abolitionist movement swept the North. Get it? Not the South, the North. So, uh, I don't know, Massachusetts and Connecticut and Vermont and so forth and so on. Ah, you'll tell me they hardly had any slaves there? That is true. I don't deny that. However, it's also true that they want to make a point where we're illegalizing, you know, we're, we're declaring illegal slavery. It's a famous mice, if you really know your history, where one of George Washington's slaves ran away <clears throat> to uh, New Hampshire, and New Hampshire would not give him back. But he said, it's a free state. And George Washington said, I want my property back. And he said, no. And he had to lump it, you know. So I'm saying slavery uh, went to abolition movement. And then, this is very interesting American history, it looked like the middle states were also going to abolish slavery. Um, Maryland, uh, Virginia, Delaware, places like that. Because um, 
the economy was of such a nature that the slaves weren't really making it kedai. And uh, that combined with the feelings of freedom, so there were serious moves and proposals in these middle states. Uh, like I said, Virginia, Maryland, Delaware, maybe somewhere else. I think New Jersey <clears throat> possibly was a slave state um, to, to get rid of it. And then came the cotton gin, and that made it profitable, and that was the end of that. So in ancient Egypt, all the Jews were slaves. The reason I'm mentioning it is like this. They have no chinuch. They have no learning. And I don't think they have reading, writing, arithmetic, as far as I know. So I'm asking the following question. What language did the slaves speak? Did they speak Hebrew? There are some places that say Lushinus Lushonim. But there are other indications, names and whatever, that Yesh Lushinus Lushonim. And it's kind of funny, because we say they're in the Memte Sharatuma. So you're trying to tell me like this. Uh, you know, this god of Egypt, they worshipped. And that god of Egypt, they worshipped. The frogs and the spy, spiders and all the other Egyptian stuff. And there were Shakua in the Tuma. But they spoke of it. <laughs> it's not Mastabur. I mean, it could be. And perhaps the Shavid Levi did, you know. We'll never know, right? We'll never know. But Mastamba, they spoke Egyptian or some kind of mixture dialect. So when Moshe came to appeal to them, the Rebunshan was picking a guy who had a Harvard education in Egyptianism, you know, excellent sector education, was a good speaker because he had a good education. Uh, if he, if it's not, if Kvad Ped doesn't mean that he, he had a, a coals in his mouth, then it means that he you know, is a harsh speaker. So, uh, most of all I said is, I'm not a good one for the slaves. They need a soft speaker. I'm a harsh guy. And Hashem said, I want you. Right? Me some pelo adam. And if you're too harsh of a speaker, I'll get you Aaron. You get it? If you see Moshe stuttered, so Aaron will not stutter. If you hold Moshe was a harsh speaker, Aaron will be the soft speaker. And that would fit with the character of Aaron, which is Rodev Shalom and all that kind of stuff. It's just interesting. So, uh, in that case, Moshe would take a look at the Jews. He's either shenanigans. And say, you guys can all go to the devil. And then Aaron would get up and say, well, what my brother just said was as follows. He would very much like everybody, you know, to uh, improve their decorum, whatever. So, uh, and, and, and Moshe needed him, you see. Now Aaron's gone, now you have the words of Moshe himself. So Moshe was a Kavad Peh. Do we see Kavad Peh? Do we see Harsh in, in, in the Book of Dvarim? A little bit. You know, he's mellowed, it's 40 years, and so on and so forth. And I'll say it again. We don't know exactly for sure, 100% for sure, what the words of Moshe were, because we have God's edition of it. Because we believe this part of the Chumash. The part of the Chumash, then it's from Hashem. The words are from Moshe, but the final notes are from Hashem. The same way, the words were from Paro, but the final words are from Hashem. The words are from, uh, what's his name? Uh, Lovan. I mean, you know Lovan didn't speak Hebrew. It said, you guys do so. He speak Aramaic. You get it? It says in the Chumash. So, I, when Lovan says, Tov titimi is oloch, mititil si shacher, and all that other stuff, that's not what Lovan actually said. That's what Hashem, when he tells Moshe to write down in the Chumash, the book of Rashis, he says, this is what, what, what Lovan said. This is what Lovan said. I'll tell you again, Lom was a big liar. Loman could have said, I love you to pieces. I want to give you a um, a big gift. But Hashem said, he's so full of it. Right? That's what he really meant. So like, you know, like you have uh, the countries that talk to Israel today. Oh, we like this and that and the other. Yeah, if you cut the baloney, what is France really saying? What is, you know, Russia really saying? And then it'd be a different story. 
So you get it raw. You understand? Now, when you get read the book, uh, so I mention all this because, you know, in what language did Moshe communicate with the Jewish people? I don't think most of them understood Hebrew, right? And certainly not an eloquent Hebrew. This is this is just very interesting. The question I'm These are things that's not so easy or possible for us to ascertain. By the time you get to 40 years in the desert, you get to Book of Dvarim, so they're speaking Hebrew. I'm pretty sure of that. Because, you know, they're not in Egypt anymore. Uh, part of the experience of 40 years in the desert was to kill off the bad generation. Part of the reason for 40 years in the desert was to raise a new generation with no television, no internet, to use modern terminology, right? It's surrounded by the clouds. They're just with the Jews and so on and so forth. And you see, there's a plus and a minus. The plus was, now they're speaking Hebrew. The minus is they have no experience out in the world. They meant to meet a girl from Moab. Boom. <laughs> okay? Boom. So, uh, that's the situation. So here you have Moshe giving a whole speech. And, as I said before, he's trying to justify why they're not in Israel yet. And, of course, he has to go, as I said before, give a history. And, um, as you know, when you read his version of the spy story, it's not exactly identical with the version that you have in the other, uh, you know, back in, in, in Bamidbar. And that's how these things go. As a matter of fact, that is very much Mashmah that sounds like Moshe Rabbeinu talking. Because, um, you know, when you say things over, you, you, you say it somewhat differently. Um, although, as I said before, we finally get to, um, you know, what Hashem is telling him to write down. This is Hashem is telling him to write down. Now, as you know, he spends his whole parsha a great deal with geography, doesn't he? Because we're dealing with the uh, last move. The Jews were, for many, many years, down, as I said the other day, in uh, the southern Negev, more, somewhere in the Eilat area. <clears throat> now, as I said... If you get that article, you know, I don't have it. Uh, hold on one minute. Let me get Hi, I just pulled up um, <clears throat> the new art school, Chumashino, the five volume with the Nakudas, the uh, Dwarim. And I see if you go in the back on page 10, um, 60s, 1060, 1062, 1063, you have these nice maps, and I do advise them. <clears throat> and I guess, if you want to see page 1063, uh, you'll see fairly well, or you can see on both pages, this final journey that he's describing today's Parsha. They tried to go through Adam, they tried to go Moab, they tried to go Ammon, until they finally end up going through um, Sichon and Og. And so you can see they're roughly, as I said before, somewhat north of Eilat. <coughs> um, they move way south of the Dead Sea to the Jordan side, what you and I today call Jordan, country of Jordan. They move up, and they can't get in through Moab, they can't get in through Ammon, they end up going, um, you know, in through Sichon and Og. They landed at Mori and the Bashan. Okay? So, um, this Moshe is a, trying to explain them how they get to where they are. Okay? Uh, and all this is by way of saying, listen, this is, this is, uh, we ain't there yet. We're not there yet. One thing he does emphasize, and I think it's very interesting, which is over and over again in the Parsha, uh, these peoples that we beat, they themselves took it over from the peoples before them. You know, nobody's righteous. 
The Middle East is a funny place. You know, somebody will say, oh, oh you uh, you took away our land. Well, you took it from us, or you took it from somebody else. Uh, for example, he mentions that the um, Gaza Strip, where we have all the trouble today, uh, is it this week's Parsha, or next week's? You know, the Gaza Strip uh, was the Philistines. No, it wasn't. There were people living there. The Philistines came to like Vikings from the island of Crete and killed everybody and took over. Right? Um, there are other places. Um, the, the mountain, Hermon uh, and all that was really had another name from another country. Sichon uh, and themselves had been conquerors and took over lands there. They weren't hereditary long-time people. And so the Middle East is of such a nature that everybody conquers the land and then it's theirs. Can't mess with it. Today in the Arab-Israeli conflict, I mean, the Arab, if you want to get down to it, the Arabs took came 1,500 years ago, it's 600s in, in, in that era, and they physically conquered all the territories in the Middle East as part of the great caliphate of old, after the death of Mohammed. Now, they had no right, no right to do it, they just did it. You understand what I'm saying? Take a country like Egypt. The Arabs conquered Egypt and Arabized it back in the 600s. You don't need me to tell you Egypt is not an Arab country. That is not their language, really. Egypt is an ancient country. It was ancient in the time of Abraham. And, I mean, again, I know you know this with the pyramids and the hieroglyphics and all the rest of it. Egypt had its own huge, magnificent civilization of a certain type. It was not Arabic, and it certainly didn't believe in one God and in Islam and all the rest of it. It don't matter. The Arabs came in. They conquered the country. They raped the country. They imposed the Islamic religion and the Arab culture on it. The only ones left with a non with an Egyptian type identity of old are the Coptic Christians, and even them, that's not really the old Egyptian religion. And I was like, hate this, but Egypt will now say like this: Oh, we're an Arab country, and we have the rights to all the land, and this, and that, and the other. And um, they're not they're not the old Egyptians. If they are, they're like what do you call Patty Hearst? They identify with the rapists. <clears throat> you understand? Know uh, there was an Egyptian intellectual. I forgot the guy who said exactly what I'm saying, but of course he got no traction. He said, you know, we should be against Islam and all the rest of it because this was our conquerors and it's imposed upon us. So Moshe Rabbeinu is taking the Jews into Israel. It sounds like even at that time you had what you call BDS. And some people think, how do you know we have the right to this? And why do we have the right to that? And Moshe is saying, listen, Sihon took it from somebody else. And this one took it from somebody else. So you have to worry about that because the original habits are gone. You see? Uh, when you go to Philistine land, the Philistines took it from somebody else. They wiped out the locals themselves of the conquerors. And so, you know, the, this is what it is. Even the Canaanites, if you know the Mepharshim and Brashas, Hakanani Osbaris, there used to be somebody prior to the Canaanim, and then they came in and killed those guys, and they took over. <clears throat> so this is how it works. The only thing is, once somebody is there for a while, then it belongs to them. So this is at the heart of the Arab-Israeli conflict today. You know, we say it's ours because they're long ago. They said, no, it's not yours. It was ours before it was yours with the original habits, blah, blah, blah. Everybody's claiming all kinds of things. And we want to do it in order to give a certain legitimacy to what at the end of the day is a land grab. You understand? End day is a land grab. So Moshe Abenu is able to argue if he wishes to. Look, Hashem gave us this land. I'm going to prove it to you. Ten plagues. Kriyas Yamsuf. You understand? Uh, that trumps all local uh, claims. But Derek Agav, you should know that these people themselves took it from someone else. Okay? So it's a very interesting mixture of uh, politics and religion 
you find mixed up in Moshe Rabbeinu's speech, which uh, he's going as they say before, again and again, um, till he finally gets to the end of today's parsha, which is by no means is not the end of the of the of the speech. It's a long rhetorical exercise, as I said before, and you know you just stop because you can't read too much, and so they have what we call parshas dvarim. Uh, but it's not the end of any part in any speech, not as far as I can see. Instead, um, it's all part of a long speech in which he's urging the people, you know, when I'm gone, don't go back to Egypt. When I'm gone, finish the job. Follow your show across the Jordan and do the job. Uh, it just goes to show you that Moshe's farewell speech is uh, not triumphalist. It's not smug. It's not patting himself on the back. It's not saying how great I am. It's uh, it, 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 admonishing the people. You're at the uh, you know five yard line at the at the two yard line. You almost have the touchdown. Don't screw it up just because I won't be there for the touchdown. And say, oh, the motion's not here. Let's call the game off. Let's go back to where we started. There were plenty of people who wanted to do it. As Rashi said at the beginning of the partial, you know, there was a whole little war, and so and so many tribes wanted to go back in the fortieth year. You know, the Jews have this tendency, you get it? And the same tendency that they had 3,000 years ago, 3,500 years ago, let's get out of Israel, that's what you see, in my opinion, manifested today. We see so many Jews joining the Arab side in this uh, war of ideas because uh, they just have this, they must be descended from those people long ago who, at the slightest thing, went into a panic and said, let's go back to Egypt. What are all these people who are saying now more and more Israel has no right to exist? Is a 10% American Jewish say Israel is an apartheid state? And I saw it in, in the headline today. <clears throat> so what's their point? So what should the Jews do? Go back to the lands you came from. Go back to Russia, Ukraine, America, wherever you want to go. When you see this Mishagas that we have today, that we have the country, and, they want to, and these are Jews, the Chutzar Jews who want to go back, you see that what you read in Parshish Tavarim is, is absolutely true. Because the Torah gives it to you unvarnished. Like I said before, I don't know what Moshe said. I know, I know the final version of Hashem gives it to you. When I give it to you unvarnished, you, it's, it's like sometime looking in the mirror, you know, it's not a pretty picture. We have Jewish heroism. We also have the other stuff. And that's mentioned in the Parsha today. Uh, I think, I think, I think that this is one of the reasons we always read this um, before Tisha Because Tisha of course, was the time of the Meraglim, among other things. And Tisha that means that we have a problem with Beis HaMikdashes. Right? Klai has some problem with keeping temples. No, we can't keep the Kedusha. And we also have problems with, um, uh, uh, what do you call it? With Eretz Yisrael, with the, with the Meraglim. It's, it's, it's a, a bad thing in our genes. You understand? Every Jew theoretically ought to be supporting Israel 100%. The Jews in Eretz Yisrael. But we find a lot of them don't. It's it's a problem in the genes. You know, some people, uh, you know, uh, what's the right word? You know, the Jews have the Tay-Sachs. The blacks have the sickle cell anemia. One of the things the Jews have is this problem, this, this funny, this weird relationship to Eretz Yisrael. Al-Elani Bochiyav, we say, when it comes on Tisha So I think there's a, a very good fit. I'm sorry to say this. It's a very, very good fit between Devorim being the partial of the week in the three weeks and the coming um, face of Tisha B'Av. So with that, I bid you a good week. Again, I want to thank the Millers and Iris Miller. I'm going to echo them to say 
mouths of the Ari and Heather. If we have enough people, I'll try to do the parsha. If I have a chance, I'll I'll give a talk about uh, Tisha B'Av. Tomorrow, I'll make an announcement of what I'm planning to do on Tisha B'Av morning and the Kinos. I'm hoping uh, we're we're working on it. Now I'm going to be doing the Kinos of at a certain shul in Baltimore, which they were still working on the technical side of it. Maybe live streamed. Uh, in which case, we'll give you the information. But anyway, as I said before, with this, I bid everybody a good week. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com.